Please be seated. And good morning to all of you. It's an absolute privilege and delight to be able to worship and serve among you this morning as we continue to exalt our God through the preaching of his word with much gratitude for those who have led us thus far. I received a, uh, just a, as a way to honor those who are serving behind the scenes that we maybe don't often notice or think about, as a way to honor those who are up in the balcony behind cameras, making sure things are being recorded and streamed and so on. I've heard from a couple of church members who are at a distance uh, for obvious reasons in other parts of the world right now can't gather with us, and they wanted to make sure it was expressed how grateful they are for the efforts of those who ensure that they can still be ministered to uh, while they are apart from us. So uh, thank you, all of you who do that so capably. Yeah, I think that's appropriate. One of the most surprising responses I believe I've ever heard of one person to another comes from the life of Corey Tendum, and I'm sure many of you have heard this account before. In 1947, she traveled to Munich, Germany from Holland with the message of the most surprising responses we will ever encounter, which is God's forgiveness, God's love, God's grace. And after the talk that she gave, uh, a former SS officer made her way towards her, and she recognized him as a guard from the concentration camp she had been sent to with her sister because they had been hiding Jews in their home. And there in Ravensbrück, she suffered much. There in Ravensbrück, her sister Betsy died. And now a man from this wretched place stood before her, she recounts, hand thrust out, and she said, he said to her, a fine message, Fraulein, how good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. But since that time, she says, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Sister, again the hand came out. Will you forgive me? Wrestling deeply inside, she reflects, still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, she prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so she recalls woodenly, mechanically, she thrust her hand into the one stretched out to her. And she says, as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced on my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, she says, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Surprising, yes? 
And the only way that we can make sense of such a response is to consider the source of this response, which is an even greater surprise, God's gracious response to our sin. The only way that such a man could ask forgiveness, and the only way that such a woman could truly extend forgiveness, is if they both experience God's forgiveness in response to the scandal of their own sin. As we continue in Wilderness University this morning, Believe it or not, we are going to be exposed to even more deplorable sin than what you might know about from concentration camps that happened in Nazi Germany. And my hope and my prayer is that you hear, as you hear about this, that you are afflicted as a result, that you mourn, that you grieve over your sin. Yet at the same time, we're going to be met with the stunning response of God's grace, which I hope and I pray will comfort you in the aforementioned affliction, that you receive and rest in God's unmatched kindness. For in opening Exodus again, we encounter this, God responds with stunning grace to our scandalous grumbling. God responds with stunning grace to our scandalous grumbling. And I'm going to press in just to how scandalous this grumbling is. Yet by God's, with God's help, to also how stunning God's grace is in response. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 16. It's page 58 in the Blue Bibles. Exodus chapter 16. My oldest son said as we were walking into the church building this morning, isn't it weird, Dad, that you're preaching about a desert walking through this? I guess he's right. I hadn't really considered it, but we're a little bit contextually removed. But nevertheless, with God's help, what was written down for our instruction as an example uh, will be of great benefit to us. So Exodus 16, I'm going to read 1 through 20, but pray before we do. So would you bow with me? Lord, rightly we sang that we come to you to receive the food of your holy word, for we do not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from your mouth. And with that being so, Lord, may that be, may our conviction, our belief in that reality be conveyed by how we listen, by how we give our minds, by how we ask you to open our hearts, and by how we respond to the reading and preaching of your word. Feed us, Lord, we pray, for your glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, in whose name we ask this. Amen. Exodus 16, this is what the Holy Spirit says. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger." 
Then Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, they will, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of Yahweh, because he has heard your grumbling against Yahweh. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When Yahweh gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because Yahweh has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against Yahweh. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before Yahweh, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of Yahweh appeared in the cloud. And Yahweh said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And the people of Israel saw it. They said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that Yahweh has given you to eat. This is what Yahweh has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, with the help of Numbers 33.3, we can calculate that the people of Israel have been on the road for roughly a month. They left Egypt around 30 days prior to their leaving the springs of water at Elim, where we left off last week. They set out from Ramesses on the, first, the 15th day of the first month. They set out from Elim on the 15th day of the second month. So that's about a month. Traveling southeast, where they come to is the wilderness of Sin, which has nothing to do with our English word sin, but with the region of Sinai. Nevertheless, sin is what they do. And pretty heavy, high-handed sin at that. Their grumbling against God is not on a good trajectory. In the previous lesson at Wilderness University, as the Lord led them through a barren place and then to a bitter place, the real need of water was the occasion for their complaining. In the previous chapter, in 1524, we're told very generally that people grumbled against Moses. In response, as we saw 
The Lord made the bitter water sweet, and then he led them to this abundance of springs of water, enough for each tribe of Israel. And we learned that at Wilderness University, God's testing trains us to trust him. However, despite being shown God's heart for them through his provision, their grumbling grows like a malignant cancer that spreads through the entire congregation of Israel. And it's scandalous. Let's just see how much so, beginning with verse 2. Where again, we read, The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. In the previous episode, they just grumbled against Moses. In this episode, it spread like wildfire through the whole congregation. Now everyone's in on it. And they don't just have Moses in their crosshairs. They have Aaron in their crosshairs as well. Do you see how easily a complaining, grumbling, bitter spirit can take hold of an entire group? You ever consider how contagious your murmurings against God can be among a community of God's people? And are you aware of how susceptible you are to others winning you over to their negative assessment? Not one person, it seems, stood up to this wave of complaint, and who knows what difference one or two or five or ten could have made if they had refused to go with the flow. Additionally, in the previous episode, a need is mentioned prior to their grumbling, but here that's not the case. That doesn't mean that they don't need to eat. Of course they do. But remember, they have all of their herds and their flocks with them. They still have them in the next chapter because there they're going to complain about not having water for them or their flocks. So there was milk. There was, I suppose they could have made cheese if they wanted to. And if they needed, they could have killed some animals to stave off hunger and starvation. Yet despite their their supply, what the people say to Moses and Aaron in verse 3, it is disturbing It's deplorable. It is utterly scandalous. Would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. You have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Can you sense the anger? The vehemence, the accusation that this is dripping with. We would have preferred, preferred because of how good we think we had it in Egypt, that Yahweh had just killed us there. The hand that turned the Nile to blood. The hand that sent the frogs, the gnats, the boils, the plague, the hail, the locusts, the darkness. The hand that avenged the killing of our baby boys. The hand that humbled the Egyptian gods. The hand that humbled Pharaoh so we could be free from our enslavement from him to serve the Yahweh. That hand, we wish, had taken us out there and then. Pharaoh was a better master than this great I am seems to be. We had it better under him than we did have it under Yahweh. horrendous. 
And as Moses and Aaron point out, twice for emphasis, their issue isn't at all with them. They say together in verse 7, what are we that you grumble against us? And to make sure everyone hears it in the back, Moses says it himself in verse 8, what are we, your grumbling is not against us, it's against Yahweh. So not only has the grumbling spread to everyone, not only have they grumbled against Yahweh, they're trying to hide it by directing it towards the Lord's prophet and the Lord's priest. But the Lord sees right through that, as do the leaders of God's people. All of this to say, there are hardly words to describe how atrocious, how heinous this diatribe is. And whether we voice this in as many words or not, we say the same when we look back with longing to the days of our enslavement and sin when it seems hard to trust the Lord where he's brought us today in Christ. The equivalent of what we're saying is it would have been better if the Lord had just left me where he was rather than sending his son in the fullness of time. I'd rather he didn't deliver Jesus up according to his definite plan and foreknowledge. I prefer he didn't bear my sins on his body on the tree. If only he hadn't bothered to open up my eyes to see his glory in the face of Christ. Wouldn't life have been better if he'd left me in slavery to sin rather than invite me into the freedom of living for his righteousness and for his glory? Well, we might not think that's what we say. But when we long for porn rather than sexual purity, when we cheat on our taxes because we would rather have more than what God has given to us, rather than seek his kingdom and his righteousness. When we entertain the prospect of made, rather than trust God through sickness and suffering, we're saying, I wish you hadn't bothered. Your salvation's a crock. If I knew it was going to be this hard being a Christian, I would have preferred not. I wish you had just taken me out already. told you it was a scandal. It is. And it absolutely reeks of entitlement. Reflecting on the Exodus, Psalm 78 speaks of food the Israelites craved, not food they needed. If the previous chapter was the beginnings of spiritual whining, this chapter is moving into full-blown temper tantrum. God, give me what I want. Give it to me now. And if he doesn't, we murmur, we grumble, we vent. Not to him, but about him. Back in 2001, just before I came to Canada, my family bought me a shirt that said, you can take the boy out of Scotland, but you can't take Scotland out of the boy. Apparently, you can take my accent away. I'm not sure what happened to that anyway. I wore that shirt very proudly. I, in fact, I wish I still had it. Israel was wearing something similar. 
can take them out of Egypt. But it's something entirely different to take Egypt out of them. You can take us from the kingdom of darkness, and so we are saved. But in our sanctification, it's a whole other matter to take the indwelling sin that remains in us. And it should grieve us deeply whenever longing for it raises its grotesque head, especially in ways that cause us to call into question who God is and what He's done for us. So I really meant, I hope, that this grieves you and that you mourn and that you're afflicted when any hint of wanting to go back because God hasn't given you what you think he should have. And the burning question now, of course, and there's all sorts of wrong turns we can take when we're dealing with the aftermath of our sin or in the aftermath of our sin. The burning question is, how is God going to respond to this? What's he going to say? What's he going to do? Is this going to exhaust his patience? Is he going to write us off? What does he do with those who have embarked on the journey of sanctification after he saves them? How does he treat those who are learning who he is and what it means to trust him? And given how scandalous our grumbling against him is, he responds with stunning grace. If you're looking for any evidence that God does not treat us as our sins deserve, you will find demonstrations many places, and this is certainly one of them. Without skipping a beat, without Moses even crying out in prayer, on the heels of this awful complaint, God responds with stunning grace to our scandalous grumbling in four inviting ways in the rest of the chapter, or the rest of the section that we read. Three of these are in verses 4 through 12, and one of them is in verses 13 through 20. All of them shine light to drive any shadow of doubt away that God is with his people. As the passage reiterates again and again, I trust you heard it when we read it, Yahweh heard their grumbling. Verse 7, because he has heard your grumbling. Verse 8, because Yahweh has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. Verse 9, for he has heard your grumbling. Verse 12, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. He's not absent. He's not blind. He's not asleep. He's not deaf. He's not forsaken them. He's there. And he hears. And though we grumble, though we grumble, Here's his gracious response. The first and most stunning of all, found in the middle of verses 4 through 12, is this invitation to come nearer his presence. And God's prophet, and Moses is functioning as a prophet here without doubt because he mentions uh, quail and manna, meat and bread, before the Lord does. God's prophet speaks to God's people and he tells them to draw closer. So God's stunning response to our scandalous grumbling is to come nearer his presence. 
Look at verse 9. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before Yahweh, for he has heard your grumbling. Now I'm starting here, not only because it surprised me the most, but because it seems to be at the center of the section of Exodus 16. On either side of this invitation to come nearer is God's glory in verse 7 and verse 10. And then if we move out from verse 9, so we've got the come nearer, then use God's glory, verse 7 and verse 10. On the other side of coming nearer and seeing God's glory is knowing Yahweh in verses 6 and verse 12. So you've got knowing, knowing, seeing God's glory, seeing God's glory in the middle, come nearer. What an invitation. One that could fill us either with dread or delight. Dread, because we're afraid that God is going to destroy us, should we come closer to Him. And whenever sinners have holy and, uh, uh, close encounters of the holy kind in the Scriptures outside of Christ, it, it, it's terrifying. Because of how holy He is. And how sinful we are. And so this can, can cause a sense of dread, come nearer, for he has heard your grumbling. What? Yet on the other hand, this is a delightful invitation because God invites us to come nearer despite our scandalous grumbling. Both responses are appropriate. We should tremble at the prospect of drawing near to this God who dwells in unapproachable light, for he is a consuming fire, and the purity of his holiness would undo us. However, we can also rejoice. For the God who hears our grumbling, who knows our hearts, who is aware of the full extent of our sin, He invites us to come, and He makes it possible for us to do so without it meaning our judgment and our destruction. The God that we cannot come nearer in our sin actually came to us in the person of Jesus Christ And as Peter writes, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Come near. Draw closer. This God who has heard your grumbling, this God who knows your sin, he says, come to me. Don't run. Don't hide. Come. For at the scandal of the cross, the scandal of our sin was dealt with so that we can draw near in full assurance of faith. This is one of the stunning ways that God responds to the scandal of our sin. Come close. And by coming nearer, we encounter the second invitation of God's stunning grace in response to our scandalous grumbling. He wants us to see clearer His glory. Come nearer his presence, see clearer his glory. Look, behold, take in the greatness and goodness of God. See clearer his glory. That comes through in the text in verses 7 and 10 as we move out from that center of verse 9. Verse 7 says, In the morning you shall see the glory of Yahweh because he has heard your grumbling against Yahweh. In verse 10, 
And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, it's like they can't even take a step towards where the cloud is. They look toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of Yahweh appeared in the cloud. So as remedy for our grumbling, God invites us to come nearer so that we see clearer. And what he displays in this greater glimpse of his glory in the cloud, what he displays in his provision of the bread is, I quote, his reputation. It is his honor, the weightiness of his character, the sum total of his divine perfections, end quote. He tells us in these resplendent ways that he hears us that he provides for us, that there's none like him, and as such that we can depend upon him entirely and we ought to depend upon him only. And if we wish to see the fullness of what God puts on display in the book of Exodus, we only have to look at the glimpse of the glory of God's Son that Pastor Aaron preached about just a few weeks ago. We have only to look at the provision of God in giving himself to us in Jesus Christ. The man who records Jesus' words of being the true bread coming down from heaven from God begins his gospel this way. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what he wants us to see. In the midst of our grumbling, someone writes, every time he provides, he adds a little more weight to his reputation. This was true in the wilderness. This was true in the incarnation. This was true in Jesus. And in this we see God's glory. We are invited to behold God's glory. And by coming nearer, by seeing clearer, we encounter a third surprising response of God's grace to our scandalous grumbling. Know deeper His character. Know deeper His character. The closer we come, the clearer we see him, the deeper we will know him. And so, moving out from the center of verse 9, another layer, look with me at how this section begins and ends. Verses 4 to 6 says, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them. He's still training them. This is still Wilderness University. He's testing them whether they will walk in my Torah, my instruction, my commandments, my law, or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, and we'll deal with the Sabbath next week, Lord willing, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then in verse 11 and 12, there's this matching statement, Yahweh said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God. The question that naturally arises here is, didn't they already know this? 
On the one hand, well, of course they did. The facts and evidence are in. Who else was it that brought them out of Egypt with all the signs and wonders that they had witnessed in the plagues and at the sea? On the other hand, of course they didn't know him. Because if they truly knew him, they would never have crumbled. Knowing God, you see, is about more than knowing mere facts about God or having your theological T's crossed and I's dotted. Most of you know my wife. You know her name. You know her face. You might know some things about her. You might even know her to some degree. But none of you know her as I know her. And my knowledge of her shapes the relational depth and intimacy that I have with her. I know her heart. I know her faith, I know her mind, I know her love, I know her faithfulness. I know she is good, I know she is wise, I know she is competitive, I know she is creative, I know how much she loves our children and she would do anything for them, and because it's not Valentine's Day or her birthday, I'll just stop there, I've got to save something back for when those things come. But on those bases, I know I can trust her. I know I should listen to her counsel. I know I can give her the benefit of the doubt when something she says or does doesn't seem to line up with what I know about her. All of this to convey, the more I know, the more deeply I know, the more intimately I know, the more bearing this has on the depth of the relationship that I enjoy with her. Now, knowing that one way God's covenant love towards his people is expressed is in the context of a marriage relationship, which is the closest human-to-human relationship that exists, the more I trust you can see the parallels here. The more that we know God, the more we know his heart, the more we know his mind, the more that we know his steadfast love, the more that we know his incomparable power, the more that we know he is the highest good and our greatest good, the more that we know he is infinitely wise, the more we know he is unfailingly faithful, the more we know what it means for him to have sacrificed his beloved son for us, the more relational bearing this will have on our trusting him even throughout Wilderness University. And we see what he's like. That instead of smashing us in our scandalous grumbling, he lavishes us with love and grace. And he says, come nearer, see my glory, know who I am. Who is a God like this? Who is gracious like this? Who will be this patient and long-suffering and kind like this? Friend, if you are not a Christian and you know that itch of wanting to be known and loved and embraced and welcomed and to belong, it's with Him. 
to know him and his son, Jesus says, is eternal life. And he invites us to. And as we come closer, as we see clearer, as we know deeper, fourthly, in fulfilling all he said he would, he invites us to experience fuller his provision. To experience fuller his provision. This we see in verses 13 through 20. All of this is leading up to these two miraculous provisions. In the evening, one of two occasions where this happens, and the second is in Numbers. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? They did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that Yahweh has given you to eat. This is what Yahweh has commanded. It, has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you. Listen to this. As much as he can eat. They complained, grumbled, reminisced that their bellies were full in Egypt, if that was even true. And Moses is saying, God's going to give you as much as you want. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered. Some were able to gather more. Some gathered less. But they measured it all out. And they realized that as they measured it all out, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each, one of, the, each of them gathered as much as he could eat. There's enough for everyone. The whole assembly. God gives them exactly what they were grumbling about, and if that isn't grace, I don't know what is. By this they would see God's glory, verse 7. By this they would know that Yahweh was their God, verse 12. He would show them that the fullness he offers is far better than the fullness they thought they had under Pharaoh in Egypt. Verse 7 says they would have meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full. Verse 12 says that in the morning they would be filled with bread. Verse 18 again says that each of them gathered as much as he could eat, none extra, none lacking. And just like the bitter water turned sweet in the previous episode, the quail and bread were evidence of God's supernatural supply of their groceries. Quail in this region, I mean, this a combination of, of natural resources provided supernaturally. And the quail in this region would fly with the evening winds. That's how they would migrate. And when they land, they're usually so exhausted that you can just walk up and catch them with your hands. Like, that's how easy he made it for them. At the, at exactly the time he said, and now for everyone, he just plops it right in their lap. It's incredible. The flake-like thing left behind after the dew is a fascinating phenomenon. Again, some people try to 
naturalize this entirely. There are insects and, and, and critters in the wilderness in this part of the world that eat certain things and then they secrete from their bodies uh, these sort of leftovers that people actually still eat today. Like they're sweet. There's, there's, there's sugars and they're, you know, and, and uh, one of them burns up as the sun comes up in the morning. So you have to get it early on. And, and uh, so, it, it, you know, in some sense, there's some natural phenomenon that occurs in this part of the world. I don't really think I'd want to eat that if it was up to me. But anyway, I don't know. Um, if you're hungry, I suppose you would do it. But this is something that the Israelites had never seen before. So it could have been a natural occurrence, but it seems that in God's providence and God's working, it is something supernatural. This happened every single day for 40 years, except on the seventh day when God made sure it lasted twice as long. And this suggests that something far more than God's providential ordering of creation is at play. For Israel, this is a, this is a new experience. The name they end up giving to the bread is manna, which means... What is it? One commentator says we would name it, what you call it? Hey, Joseph, go out and get some more, what you call it? Well, what is it? Well, I just go get it. And in the combination of these natural resources provided supernaturally, quail and manna, God's people are being taught to trust him, even as Jesus teaches us to trust in the Lord's prayer. It gives a little bit of a fuller meaning, does it not? Give us this day our daily bread. Or is teaching us not to be anxious about what we will eat or drink. For our Father in heaven knows our need of such supply. In this, the Israelites were again tested at Wilderness University and whether or not they would trust him to provide for them each day. Hence the instruction of verse 19, let no one leave any of it over till morning. This would be exposing before Yahweh, as per verses 4 and 6, of whether or not they were actually going to listen to him. Some already do not, as verse 20 tells us. Some left part of it till the morning. I'm not going to trust that he's going to do this again. So I'm just going to hoard to make sure that my bases are covered. Not that there isn't wisdom and prudence and planning and all those different types of things, but here in this moment and us every single day of our lives, we're called to trust the Lord for today, and then we're called to trust him again tomorrow. But some of them already do not. We are so hard-hearted, aren't we? so fickle some of them left it it, it left it it bred worms it stank Moses was angry this zeal of spiritual leaders is kindled when those who they oversee persistently refuse to trust and obey this God who responds with such stunning grace to our scandalous grumbling we would do well to heed Hebrews 13 17 here which says, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. As far as Moses is concerned, no wonder this gives rise to his anger. 
And no wonder even more in our own context when we consider that the invitation to come nearer God's presence, see clearer God's glory, know deeper God's character, and experience fuller God's provision, it culminates in the true bread that comes down from heaven. This is why we had this lengthy scripture reading earlier in the service from John 6, so that we would realize that it is through Christ that we are invited to draw near. It's in Christ that we see God's glory. In knowing Christ, we know God the Father. To believe in Christ is to be supplied with water and bread that will satisfy us so that we do not hunger and thirst anymore. And when we still grumble, a text as this one such as this one, it leads to a single point of application in the end. We should be humbled. This should absolutely wreck us in the best possible sense of that term. It should put us on our faces as we consider how much we grumble and complain in light of who God is and the way that he's showing again his heart for his people. God's grace here should overwhelm us. His provision is unparalleled. And then when we treat it and him as a, as a nothing, he still gives us more grace. My, we are an unbelievably blessed people. So let that reality humble you to teach you utter dependence upon the Lord throughout Wilderness University. Let God's provision humble you to open up your hand to be generous with the abundance that God has provided for you to you. Let this reality humble you to confess your grumbling as often as is needed both to God and to his people. Let that humble you to continually say thanks for his surprising grace in response to the scandal of our sin, which is God's will for us in Christ Jesus to say thank you. This should humble us, all of us. For church, there is none like him. And he will patiently, graciously teach us in all sorts of ways, in all sorts of circumstances, to move towards and to trust his glorious self. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for showing us your glory. Thank you for showing us your character. Thank you for making it so that we could draw near. And thank you for providing for us, especially in the bread that has come down from heaven, the true bread which gives life to everyone. Help us, Lord, 
to know this feast that is Christ. And by faith, to be satisfied by him and yet keep coming to him for more. Give us more grace, Lord, we pray. We need your help to see you and not to be overwhelmed by our circumstances so that we don't even cry out to you. Thank you for giving us words to talk to you when we are sad and angry and confused and disoriented. Lord, give rise to such prayers and keep us, Lord, from instead cutting off, as it were, communication with you and just grumbling about you in our own heart and head and to anyone else who will listen. Forgive us, Lord, we pray. And help us to know that you are for us more than we would ever have dared imagine. And so help us to trust you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.